Hello and welcome to the first Royal Horticultural Society gardening podcast of 2018. I'm Jenny Bowden, one of the RHS's advisory team. Traditionally, January is a time for many people to pause, take stock and reflect on how they might improve their lives, health and happiness in the year ahead, with new challenges, new activities, changes to lifestyle, as well as making changes in the garden. Today's podcast is all about giving you inspiration for new garden-focused activities for the year ahead. We'll visit a gathering of plant societies to hear how these exciting communities can help you expand your plant skills and knowledge, as well as making connections with fellow garden lovers. Then, we'll join a group of passionate wildlife gardeners on a tour of Wisley to look at exciting ideas to help encourage birds into your plot. If one of your resolutions for 2018 is to expand your gardening knowledge or your social circle, why not think about joining a plant society? There are many of these groups across the UK. They're comprised of members from diverse backgrounds and locations who share an appreciation for a particular plant species, from cacti to chrysanthemums. Getting involved in one of these groups is a great way to share your passion and grow your knowledge of your favourite plant. We went to a plant society workshop at Wisley to find out more. Hello, my name is Vanessa Penn. I'm the Partnership Coordinator at RHS Wisley, which means I get to work with all the plant societies that we have very close contact with. I work with about 40 plant societies in total, although there are many more out there. And basically, plant societies are wonderful. They're full of enthusiasts and know absolutely everything about a particular plant. So if you do want to know about how to grow delphiniums or dahlias or trees or whatever your, your favourite um, plant is, there will be a plant society out there for you, full of really friendly enthusiasts that can tell you from the grow from seed to how to care for it when it's it's very old. We're here today for the annual Plant Society workshop and it's the opportunity for all the plant societies to get together, to network, to hear about each other's plans for the future, what they've been up to, information about individual societies. We also cover sort of important topics so for example we've got somebody here today talking about plant health and xylella which is um, very pertinent to most of the people here some of them are nursery people so it will be it will affect them we also cover um, changes at Wisley other RHS gardens the new garden at Bridgewater so again they come in they find out what's going on they get the chance to answer any burning questions they might have about what the RHS is doing really for plant societies I'm Julian Reid from Kent. I'm also a member of the British Pteridological Society. Nothing to do with pterodactyls, but ferns. I joined the Fern Society in the late 1970s and it's been fantastic. It's not just ferns we talk about, we talk anything planty while we're out there looking at ferns, including mosses. Some people are into tropical plants as well. There's a spore exchange each year, meetings programmes across the country. There's different groups in different parts of the country. Plants I've never dreamed I'd ever see, we found. My collection from just a few has blossomed. It's also known as the Friendly Society by the members, because they are. It doesn't matter whether you come from Kent, when you're up in East Anglia or up in Cumbria, it doesn't matter whether you're someone who's a scientist or a gardener or someone just starting out. It's a society for everyone. Ferns are such a fantastic range of foliages. The form of foliage, some of them are so fine and feathery, some are coarse, some have red new growth, pink new growth, some of them produce little plantlets up the stems. There's a royal fern. I'm 6'5", they can get bigger than me. And they've got purple new growth in the spring. Absolutely stunning. 
We also have a wonderful show at Wisley every year. This year, it's in the gallery at the greenhouse on the second weekend of August. The people of Fernside are a lovely bunch. You ought to come and join us. I'm Patricia Foster and I am the current chairman of the Cottage Garden Society. And although we are the Cottage Garden Society in the UK, we do have members all over the world. This society is a society for people who prefer the relaxed style of what used to be termed old cottage gardens. But of course, modern cottage gardening is quite different. For a start, you don't have to have a cottage. You just need to have some pots or troughs. Anything like that will do. Uh, you don't have to have a half an acre or more to be able to achieve cottage garden style. What we're interested in is the survival of these particular plants many of which are becoming really valuable to us now. For example, uh, foxglove, which has given us the heart medicine digoxin and many other heart medications, uh, and many other plants which we're only just beginning to learn about. And of course, in the old cottage gardens where people had to grow their own herbs for medicine, this is where people are now looking for the original plants, the old plants, which will help in modern medicine. Historically, cottage gardening wasn't actually developed as a particular style. It simply grew in the sort of 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries out of necessity where agricultural workers lived in, certainly not a cottage, it was probably more like a hovel or a shack. You couldn't go to the chemists, so you had to have all your medicinal plants in the garden within easy reach. You had to have all your food production near the house because there again it was very labour intensive and you couldn't afford the time to go traipsing off to a field somewhere. And so everything had to be done within whatever little bit of land the particular peasant had. We're known for being a very friendly lot. We're as relaxed as our gardening, I suppose. We're also quite a cheap society, I suppose, in that in the same way that the old cottage gardeners grew things from seed because there were no garden centres, we simply propagate in that way because it is a cheap way of achieving what you want. And you can grow delphiniums, poppies, irises, you can grow all sorts of things. And there is no set standard for this. It's the combination of plants. It's the combination of putting some herbs in the flower border. Nobody is going to criticise you if your cottage garden isn't the same as the one down the street. Obviously, people have an idea about the sort of plants they like. You know, if you say cottage garden, they might think hollyhocks, sweet peas, poppies, delphiniums, astrantia, all those sorts of things. But of course, we do have uh, trees and shrubs as well. And of course, bulbs. Uh, we are not exclusively herbaceous perennials. We have 33 regional groups, but you don't have to be a member of a group. To start with, you join the National Society, which gives you access to the quarterly magazine, the Seed Exchange, and of course, if you wish to then participate in a group to take part in garden visits and other social activities, then you're more than welcome. Because we all have our own particular tastes. I particularly like tall plants. My next door neighbour probably wouldn't, but it's our own personal choice. And if something doesn't ver do very well one year, well, it doesn't matter. You can try it again the next year. Th that's gardening. Hello, I'm Liz Smith from the European Boxwood Topiary Society. And I'm Chris Poole, uh, the chairman of the European Boxwood and Topiary Society in the UK.
We are a society that has been going for about 20 years and um, it's great to get together and to share the passion of boxwood and how you can grow it in your garden, cultivate it um, and also how to control pests and diseases. Uh, we're about 240 members in the UK but we've also got uh, affiliates in France, Germany, Belgium and Holland. We have an annual magazine called Topiarius that comes out and we do five or six uh, garden visits a year uh, along with talks about uh, things that are happening uh, to box and topiary in, in the UK. The good thing about box is it grows pretty much anywhere. It's a great plant if you've got shaded areas, um, it will grow under trees and so on. So it's a, a really, really good plant. You can leave it to grow just naturally or you can do the other part of our society's bit which is topiarising it. Uh, clipping it into nice shapes. If you're into animals, you can do animals. Personally, not my favourites. Uh, I prefer the more organic or geometric shapes. You can topiarise a plant in an afternoon. If you go and buy your plant, go and buy a plant from you know, B&Q or wherever, you get a plant, have a look at it, think what shape does that suggest to me and then just clip it round or it doesn't have to be a specific shape you can just clip it to form any sort of shape cloud shape you name it whatever your imagination can come up with you, you can do it the only thing if kids are doing it obviously you're using uh, shears just be very careful with them but uh, box is very new box growth is very easy to clip because it's quite supple and so it's very easy to clip you could do it in a um, window box have your box plants there so if you've got no garden at all but you've got a window ledge why not plant some box in a window box and then clip it into a nice shape even if it's just undulating clouds to reflect the clouds outside of your window whatever you like obviously if you get really excited about box or topiary or both and you'd like to join a very friendly society you can do that by joining up online at ebts.org i became a member through my client mary and she introduced me to the European Boxwood Topiary Society and said that I would meet some amazing people and see some amazing gardens and I have. I've seen some beautiful gardens through the day visits. For example, Iford Manor, that's a beautifully landscaped garden and there's lots of topiary and boxwood there. And then also I have met some very interesting people who are really passionate about gardening and we've been able to share our experiences about gardening as well. You can find out more about the range of plant societies in the UK and how you can get involved on our website at rhs.org.uk forward slash societies. You can also see the work of these societies and meet members at many of this year's RHS flower shows and events. The new programme of shows has recently been published and is available on the events pages of our website. Now, a New Year's tweet for all wildlife lovers. The concluding part of our series about garden birds. In part one, we discussed the surprising range of bird life in our urban environments, in towns, cities and even supermarket car parks. Today, I'm joining fellow garden lovers here at Wisley to discuss ways that gardeners can encourage more birds into their gardens. I'm Helen Bostock and I work at the RHS Gardens at Wisley and that's where we are today. It's fairly chilly and I'm here with a couple of garden staff, Jack and Bernard, who are here to talk a little bit about what everybody in their gardens can do to help the birds out at this rather difficult time of year. So, yeah, if I can just introduce Jack. 
Hi, I'm Jack. I'm a senior horticultural team leader, again based here at Wisley in the plant centre. And, and I'm Bernard Boardman and I work for the edibles team. I help look after the orchard and the vineyard. So Bernard, you, you've possibly been at Wisley the longest. I, I don't know how many years it is now, but... Um... Quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> You're not letting on. I can tell you, I will have been here 29. <laughs> so, um, yes, been here a while. And um, I was actually encouraged with my bird watching by an ex-director um, general, Gordon Ray, who was interested in birds. And he asked me if I would turn my craft skills to making bird boxes. And he actually gave me a bird box book and... Uh, I was provided with some wood and I set about making bird boxes that we put round the garden. So um, we've been watching the birds here for quite some time. I can imagine. And in fact, although it might seem like a rather barren time of year in the garden and there's not a lot that gardeners can be doing other than maybe uh, cleaning some of their tools and waxing lyrical about what their borders might look like next year but um, of course it's actually a perfect time for getting out there and, and having a look at what birds are in your garden because of course with many of the leaves off the trees um, that means we've got a fighting chance of actually seeing seeing what birds are about. Might come as some surprise to some of uh, our listeners that um, actually UK birds aren't all about boring brown jobs, you know, that there's actually few real dandies out there, aren't there? Um, I mean, my favourite is perhaps the um, bullfinch, which the male livery of, of uh, bullfinches is really quite uh, dramatic, wonderful, deep crimson sort of uh, 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 feathers, plumage, um, definitely to to rival the, the, the robin, I would say, but um, I don't know what, any favourites? I would have to say at this time of year it's got to be the, the classic Christmas card photo of the robin in the snow type picture um, with their lovely bright red uh, chests. Um, it's just a real flash of colour in the garden at this time of year and if we are lucky enough to have a snowy day they stand out so clearly and they just look so lovely at this time of year. And of course I think we there's a bit of a mis misconception that it's it's the males that have the red breast but of course both adults of um, both sexes uh, have it, so it could be Mr. or Mrs. that you've got yeah, uh, as your pet robin. But a real exciting bird to have sometimes at Wisley is, of course, the waxwing. Um, Bernard, have, have we had them here this year? We, we haven't seen them um, for a little while now, but we have had waxwings here in the past, and uh, you certainly know they're about before you see them because you hear them chattering. They make the most enormous noise, and it's great fun. And they are a lovely colour if you're very lucky when you're walking around the garden. I mean, um, you might be lucky enough to see the flash of a kingfisher. We often see them when we're walking the, the canal locally. Um, but I have seen them in the garden. They love to go fishing uh, along the bottom of the rock garden there. And I have actually, so I've seen them in the ornamental canal as well in front of the laboratory um, where there's a ready supply of small red rudd and uh, they're not averse to taking the odd fish, but we don't mind. I guess it's, it's worth it. because I'm surrounded by woodland, um, jays are another one which really, if you get a, a flash of just a couple of feathers within their wings, um, have this most electric blue 
that might be one that, that catches your eye as well. We, 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 we see jays up in the orchard and it's quite interesting because quite often in the spring um, you will find um, seedling oak trees growing underneath the apple trees and you can be absolutely certain that they were put there by our visiting jays and um, I think left to their own devices they would create many a, an oak woodland for us. <laughs> Which rather brings us on to the problem that some gardeners might experience is with seed becoming an issue underneath bird feeders. You know, this sort of sprouting seed, um, people worry that they attract rats and other vermin. And yeah, what, what can gardeners do about that? I think that they, you do need to be vigilant. I mean, seed mixes are designed to cater for all sorts of different birds. And you might not have... Um, birds with the right sort of beak um, visiting your bird feeder and some of that seed will fall to the floor um, and if it's not hoovered up by squirrels um, it may well be hoovered up by mice and um, voles to start with but you could possibly attract rats as well so I would certainly say that you should try and keep round the base of your feeders sort of as clean as possible. Probably better not to plant up underneath the feeder. Um, it, plants will struggle there anyway because you'll get a lot of, there's an awful lot of traffic with birds trampling around. I mean Jack I don't know is, are things like um, sunflower hearts, so those that have had the husks removed, are they more popular for, for customers um, at Wisley? I think there's a, there was just a whole range of different products and, um, and there are a good number of products now such as the peanut butter based products that don't necessarily make so much mess, they don't fall to the floor so much so there is um, less uh, kind of debris falling around but it's always good to be vigilant and just keep an eye and make sure that um, there aren't any kind of seedlings sprouting up or a whole abundance of debris around the bottom because like Bernard says um, you can actually attract the wrong kind of garden visitors at that point. So good hygiene, having a bit of clear up, moving it around a bit, and maybe getting the sort of no mess type type mixes. What is it that garden birds really need in the middle of winter? What 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 nutritionally do um, do they need to stock up on? Because of the the cold weather at this time of year, it's definitely kind of um, bird products that are quite high in fat. So again, your peanut butter products are perfect for that. It just helps the birds retain that kind of heat, um, gets them prepared for those very cold days where it might not really get so much above freezing and provides them with the energy to keep themselves going. <clears throat> of course, a nice thing to do perhaps with the kids on a winter day is uh, to get the, the suet that you can melt down um, pour that into a, perhaps an old margarine tub or something, make a block out of it. And if you really want to, you know, sort of attract different birds, you can try before it's set, um, just throwing in a handful of things like uh, sunflower hearts or raisins or, you know, fruit bits, um, and then just pop it in the fridge. That will set overnight nice and quickly, put that out, and that, that's actually a very cheap way of, of, of feeding your, your garden birds in winter, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and like you say, it's a great way to get um, children involved um, in, in caring for their birds and, and just generally having a bit of an experiment to see if different things you're putting into those kind of suet-based things are going to attract different birds. 
we take it for granted that we just turn a tap on and, and can get a glass of water whenever we want. But of course, in a cold winter, that's not so easy for birds, is it? You know, most of their water sources are going to be frozen over. So yeah, I guess it's, it's really important for us to be thinking about um, putting out a source of water in winter. Yeah, definitely. Um, and with the very cold days that we can potentially be having right the way from kind of any time now right the way through until even March sometimes with frosts the water in bird baths can freeze quite easily it's worth just keeping an eye on this and making sure that if it does freeze if you can get the ice out and replace with some fresh water in the morning it just means that the birds have access to an easier water source and can keep themselves hydrated through those harsher colder days especially as other water sources can actually freeze as well so the natural um, water sources or ponds and things will pretty much be frozen and can stay frozen for a long period of time so it's really critical just to keep an eye on your bird bath just to make sure that's topped up. I think we forget that the birds exert a lot of energy even just flying from garden to garden and I think the principle these days, I don't know Bernard, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're going to start feeding and putting out water and things, the, the advice is really to, to keep doing that, is that right? I, I, th I think so, I think as you're saying they use a lot of energy flying about, so if you start feeding um, it's always best if you can to keep feeding them and then they will know where to come and also you will probably wind up with a lot more birds because people are attracted by crowds and birds are the same they're not they're, they can soon spot a food source and uh, and that goes right up the chain uh, this last winter we had a, we were frequently visited um, by a sparrowhawk which was great for us not always great for the blue tits and grey tits, but you know, you see such a range um, if you get lucky. You can find more inspiring ideas about wildlife gardening on the RHS website. If you missed our last bird feature, you can listen again on episode 119. All episodes of the RHS Gardening Podcast are archived on iTunes and can be downloaded through our website. Wildlife is also one of the most popular categories in our annual RHS Garden Photography Competition, which is open for entries now. There are a range of categories, entry is free, and there is even a Young Garden Photographer of the Year category. So if you feel like exploring your creative side, it's time to get snapping. The closing date for competition entries is the 2nd of March, and you can find out more details at rhs.org.uk forward slash photocomp. I'm afraid that's all we have time for in this edition of the RHS Gardening Podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight when Chelsea designers will be giving us suggestions about how to beat the January blues and improve health and well-being through gardening. Plus, we'll be tackling some of the first gardening questions of 2018, including houseplants to improve air quality and how to rehome a Christmas tree. Until then, remember you can follow us through our social media. For now, from me, Jenny Bowden and all the podcast team, goodbye. <laughs>